Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest... I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest for today's show is Bob Cohen. Bob is the recently retired founder of Perseus Realty, which is now known as Transwestern Development Company. Um, It's a company he founded uh, in about 2004, right after um, leaving CBRE, which had been, had acquired his company prior to that, which was Insignia ESG, which was acquired his other company prior to that was Barnes Morrison Pardo, which he was a broker for many years. Bob started his career in 1971 with Barnes Morris Pardo after a successful stint with IBM and selling copiers and other equipment. So he was a broker in downtown Washington for a good 11 years with Barnes Morris and was very successful, one of the top brokers in the city, and then became president of the firm in 1982 after a couple of people retired and no one else wanted the job, so he took it. And he led it through basically three corporate mergers, one with Long & Foster Commercial, where they acquired that entity and became part of Barnes, Morris, and Foster. And then they merged them with Insignia ESG, which was a firm from South Carolina that acquired them, them and they became that. And then subsequently, in early 2000s, CBRE merged and took ES Insignia. Bob decided at that point that he would uh, 
pivot completely from brokerage and leading a brokerage firm and management to starting his own investment company. And so he started investing in office buildings. And when the markets got a little tough for investment and buying, he decided to become a developer and started developing projects and building his team there for development. So he started building uh, office and then evolved into multifamily and mixed-use development. And as I said, just recently decided to retire and let the Transwestern organization take over, basically. So he talks about what he wants to do now and in his career, but it's quite a career. So basically, it's 1971, that's 51 years, 52 years in the business. And he still wants to do more. He said, retirement is not something that's in his vocabulary. So anyway, without further ado, enjoy this uh, wide-ranging conversation with Bob Cohen. So Bob Cohen, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So you recently, quote, retired from what is now known as Transwestern Development, formerly known as Perseus Realty. Assuming you're staying active still, what are your plans going forward at a high level for now? And we can dig deeper a bit later. Retired is a strange word. It is a strange word. Most of my colleagues and friends say, Bob, you'll never retire. (laughs) And, well, I hate to disappoint them, but I am going to retire, although I have a number of projects that are that are ongoing, that I have responsibilities for long as a managing member, mm-hmm. things like that. Yep. So one is the, that one, the Noma, Noma uh, Center project. Another one is 15th and S, another one out in Prince George's County. That I will stay actively involved on the financial side of it, but not on the day-to-day activities. And ironically, maybe a week after I retired, I got a call from a guy who used to work for me. He says, I got this deal over in Arlington. <laughs> Do you want to look at it? And of course, being a deal junkie, of course. I said, okay, I'll go look at it. And, you know, I'm not sure where we are yet, but it, there's there's some ongoing activity for it. Once so, a broker, always a broker, right? Well, this is a, as a principle. Oh, I understand. So, yeah, but, but still, it's it's hard to get it out of your system. But, you know, it's, it's kind of a disease, a real estate disease. Well, what I want to talk about in more depth, of course, is, you know, the pivot from brokerage into development. I mean, that's that's not many people do that or have done that, because I think it, it, this is based on interviewing so many people. My sense is it's a different personality type to do uh, each one of them well. But that I'm going to let you answer that in more detail a little later on if we can. Yeah, no, no, I have I have some good answers for that one. That's good. So tell us about your origins, youth, and parental experiences, Bob. With my parental experiences? Your, your, no, not your parental, but your, your parents, your parents, your family. Well, I grew up, up. I grew up in uh, Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Okay. We're just outside of Springfield, which is in the western part of the state. Yeah. So I'm not don't have a Boston accent exactly. And I was not the best student in the world. I was interested in sports predominantly. I played baseball and I played football. And, you know, I was a fairly, a fairly decent athlete back in those days. Mm-hmm. And I, 
I shouldn't admit this, I guess, especially being recorded, but my guidance counselor told me that he thought I should go to trade school. Really? And not college. Wow. Yeah. So I wound up, anyway, I wound up going to college, and I went to Kent State in Ohio oh, for you? two years. Okay. Uh -huh. I didn't really love it. I had some friends and all that. So were thing. you there in the late 60s? I was there after, before, excuse me, before, before the, the uh, famous Ohio shootings. Yeah, uh -huh. that was a, that happened in a in a place called Blanket Hill. Mm -hmm. It's where everybody used to go with their girlfriends and yeah. hang out there. Okay. And, and until that terrible tragedy happened. And I transferred to George Washington University. GW, okay. And the reason I chose GW was being from Massachusetts, most of my high school friends went to school in Boston, either BU or sure. DC or something. And so I decided that if I want to make something of myself, I need to go somewhere where I don't know anybody. I want to start from scratch. And I became much, much more interested in school, did much better in school, got involved with a lot of work here in Washington. I mean, after school, because I, I paid for most of my own education. I had a job after school where I got paid, I don't know, in those days, $4 an hour or something. How'd you get, how'd you choose GW of all the schools in the D.C. area? Why not, you know, Georgetown or well, I, American I, I University? I got into here? American and I got into, I didn't, I didn't apply to Georgetown. I just applied to American and to GW. Uh -huh. And I got into both and... I like I'd like more urban environments. Sure. Mm -hmm. Although I live about a half a mile from AU now, <laughs> but so I lived in a dorm. It was kind of a jock dorm. So what years were you at GW? I came there in 1965. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. And graduated in 60 January of 67. So before, well, after Martin Luther King was on the mall. So he, oh yeah, but. Before the riots, though. Yeah, the ri riots were 68. Right, the year after. Yeah. yeah. So I, I had an interesting experience here. I met these two guys, they're friends of mine, from Seattle. Yep. You would think of them as the Winkle, Winkle bosses now. Oh, but sure. They're not, but yeah. they're not. Right. <laughs> they weren't. Right. But two twins. Mm -hmm. And they each got a job on Capitol Hill making $8,000 a year. And I'm making $4 an hour after school. I said, there's something wrong here. So I found my way in to a friend who worked for a senator from North Carolina. I went to see him. Sam Irvin? Yeah. And I said, I went to see him. Famous Sam Irvin. And I said to him that I'm doing a paper at GW on the seniority system in Congress. And I'd like to talk to you about that and get some feedback uh -huh. on my report. Yeah. So we went talked through that whole thing. And then I said, well, my parents live in Florida at this point in time, but I'm looking for a job, patronage job as well on Capitol Hill. And he said, well, you know, I can't do anything for you because you're not from North Carolina, mm -hmm. but I'll call my good friend Spessard Holland and talk to him. Anyway, he did that, and I wound up getting a job on uh, in Capitol really? Hill. Running an elevator, believe it or not, that those were the those were jobs that were paying a lot of money. 
Isn't that something? Yeah. So it was really kind of a fun. Which one of the office buildings sent around? In, in the Senate office, on the Senate side and the Senate office buildings. And they, they move you around based on your seniority, no oh, less. That's interesting. So if you're there at the beginning, you get a real busy elevator. And if you're there for a couple of years, you get a really slow elevator. So I could sit on my elevator and do my homework. Because you'd only get a you know a few calls every every hour. Was this a union job? No, it wasn't unionized. No. Okay. So anyway, I did that, and I also worked in two bars and a liquor store. So I had like four jobs during college. That's fun. Yeah. No, no. It's it's how I uh, got to know my way around DC, and uh, and then I went to work. When once I graduated, I decided. Had to get a real job. Sure. And I, I uh, interviewed with several technology companies, IBM and a couple of others. Digital equipment. Digital. Things. Yeah. It wasn't digital at the time. It was more like office equipment. Right. And so I interviewed with several of them, and IBM made me an offer, and I took the job. Was that a sales training job? A sales training job. It was a mm-hmm. sales job. But they had great sales training. Right, right. In fact, I think I went to, I went to Dallas for two weeks one time. I went to White Plains for two or three weeks, mm-hmm. and you know, even to this day, I conduct business based on some of that training that I learned back then. Mm-hmm. So that was a very beneficial sure. exercise. As good as a college education. Were you selling mainframes? Is that what you were shooting? No, office equipment. Oh, just the small yeah. stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, well, it evolved into from typewriters and dictating equipment to copiers. Right. To magnetic typing, you know, machines. Mm-hmm. And then this thing called the MTSD, which sort of had, which, which merged names and content. And it was the early stages of the, of the computer. Sure. Well, the, I remember the key punch machines. Yeah, those cards. Now, I was I never dealt with those, but uh-huh. I I was I was after that. And after I left IBM, uh, I had an unusual experience there. I qualified for they had the thing called the Golden Circle, which okay. was the top five percent of the sales force. Really, and so they have this event. It was at the Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach. Oh, yeah, sure. So, and it was the only event that IBM allowed spouses to come to. I wasn't married, but I was engaged. And I got approval from my manager and his manager that I could bring my fiance. So you were in that top 5%. I was in the top 5%. That's awesome. And after I came back from that event, which I had a great time, they called me in and they said, we're firing you. What? Because you took your fiance, who was not your spouse, and somebody else's spouse got upset about it because they didn't know if I was going to actually be married or not going to be married. So they got upset about it. And it was it was actually a, a very interesting. I was about to get married. I didn't want to tell my in-laws that I wasn't, didn't have a job. And, and so... I decided, you know, I decided that well, I like urban environments. I uh-huh. like real estate. Uh-huh. I like so I started looking around for a job in the real estate industry, 
And I went to see a, a friend who used there's a company in town you probably remember called Shannon and Shannon Lux. Lux, yeah. And I went to see a friend of mine who worked a friend who worked there, and I said I'd like to be your runner if possible. And he said, Well, I have one now. I can't take on another one, but go see Charlie Pardo at Barnes Morris and Pardo. So I went to see them and they said, We'd like to hire you but we can't afford to pay you anything. And since I was a good salesman, mm -hmm. I, I said to myself, even though I don't know much about real estate, I'll take the job. And I'll figure out, I'll figure out, I'll sell something and I'll figure out what I did later. And so that's what happened. And the first project I wound up selling was a, an apartment project out in Laurel, Maryland. Oh, really? Yeah. And that was the, sort of the beginning of the relationship with Barnes Morris. Fascinating. Interesting. So did you talk to any other brokerage firms other than Shannon Lux or not? Carrie Winston. Oh, you did talk to Carrie yeah. Winston. Okay. And Mike Winston and Tommy Nordlinger. Mike Winston said to me, I think you should go out to Northern Virginia and sell houses for a few years. And I said, thank you, Mike, for the advice, but I don't think I'll take it. <laughs> and Nordlinger, who was the sales manager at the time, uh -huh. said, well, we're bringing in this top-notch guy from Richmond, Virginia. And so we don't have a spot for you right now. And that turned out to be a big incentive for me. Because once I got to Char you know, to Barnes Morris, I really became the top real estate salesman in the city for at least 10 years. That's great. You know, and, and I competed with them a lot and, oh, and sure. won in many occasions. So. so when you look, CB wasn't even in the city at that point. No, no, no. CB nor JLL. Not, none of the big guys right. were here. Right. And then they, they started coming in. I don't remember the exact year, but probably in the late, late 70s. 70s, I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, Ray Ritchie. I've interviewed Ray. Yeah. Cab Grayson. Yeah. Um, Vernon Narr. All these guys, of course. Well, there then. The Vernon, so. Vernon Narr and John Kyle. John Kyle. Vector. Turned out. Because I, well, in, in 1982, Barnes Morris decided to grow and get outside the city and go to Maryland, Virginia. Right. And I, well, Bill Morris died at a young age. So I took over, and Charlie Pardo didn't want to run the company. So it was either do I go to work for somebody else or do I take over? So I decided to take over. And then we built it up into a, into a big company. But I say, they won't say this, but I say that Vernon and John were beneficiaries of me stepping out of the downtown real estate market. Really? Because I, I made a lot of deals downtown. And they, they, they made a lot of deals too, but they had less competition at that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vernon's, you know, he was my partner on a deal, a couple of deals that we did together. But and John is an old friend. But yeah, they're good. They're good guys. I like them both. And I haven't seen John in a long time. Every once in a while, I run into Vernon. Yeah, yeah. So let's see here. <clears throat> so from then 1971 is is when you joined Barnes Morris. Is that roughly about that time? Yes. Okay. And who who there? You mentioned two names. Who else influenced you there? How did you learn the sales biz and real estate? What, where were your real estate mentors then, basically? Well, I would say there was a guy named David Carpenter that was there, 
who, when I found this apartment project for sale, sure, I said, David, I'm happy to work with you and share the commission, but I need you to train me and help me learn the business, mm-hmm. which he did, which was fine. And over time, as I learned more about real estate, Bill Morris said to me one day, he said, Bob, you know, if you're going to go visit John and ask him about selling his real estate, you better learn more about, you better know more about his real estate than he does. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, why would he hire you? Exactly. What could you offer him? Right. So every time I got involved with something, I, I took the time to learn it. And then I worked closely with a young guy at the time, Chip Ackridge. Oh, sure. And I probably did the first 10 or 12 deals that he did as a broker and wound up investing with him in, the, in those When he deals. first started. Yeah. And so, you know, I actually learned the land business through Working the acquisitions that, that he made. And I expanded and I worked, I worked with Oliver Carr and I worked with Ben Jacobs and I worked with Mel Lincoln and once in a while with Nick Antonelli. So the, the, the mafia. <laughs> That's quite a group. Oh, yeah. So I, I, well, because in 1974, I don't know how I can remember all these things now. I had like four or five pieces of land in Montgomery County under contract. Mm-hmm. And they all fell out during the recession. So I said, I learned two things from that. I'm never going, I'm actually probably a mistake by not going back out there mm-hmm. and continuing to work out there. But I'm never working with people who don't have money. Again, because some of those people could have made those deals happen, and so that was, those are those are lessons learned about yeah. real estate. And then over time, you know, the HP twelve came out, and then the, the different iterations of computers and so forth. And so that was that was an evolution. Sure. Although there was one guy in town, a guy named Jerry Gallup, who also taught me a lesson because I would go in there with. You know, hey, Jerry, I learned how to do this 12, this 12C. Mm-hmm. And if we do this and this, the deal will work, you know? He said, Bob, I want to tell you something. Another lesson for you. If it doesn't work on a yellow pad, it doesn't work. You can twist and turn it all you want, but it doesn't work. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. It, it's complicated now for other reasons, but... Well, I think our the peripheral parts of our business have gotten more complicated. Yeah. The environmental, the, all the different things, you know. Just well, the, the different levels of financing that kind of, you know, nobody knew what mezzanine debt was. Right, the creative or, financing. Or, or creative, yeah, creative financing. Creative legal work, creative zoning, creative. Yeah, just sometimes all kinds it's so creative yeah. that if the downturns come, it doesn't work. That's right. Yeah. So that goes back to the yellow piece of paper again. But, you know, I mean, I just interviewed Art Solo of Learner. And so you yeah. talked about how Ted Lerner got started. And it's pretty interesting. How Building they, houses. Well, that. But, you know, his first mall with the Gadelskis and that whole thing. I mean, yeah. I said, how did you learn how to put together a regional mall deal? I mean, there, there weren't too many templates for that. <laughs> so apparently there were attorneys in Baltimore that had done worked with the Rouse Company and other companies that have done enough. So it's interesting how the industry kind of evolved, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean... You know, 
I had to learn how an office building worked. Right. If I sold a piece of land, it, it doesn't matter what the price is. If it doesn't work or if there's not enough rent or the cost is too high or whatever. So you, you just, you know, I learned by sort of the school of hard knocks. Well, there wasn't many, for, we didn't have the internet. You had, the phone book might have been your, your, your calling if you were calling people more or less. I mean, where else could you get information? Well, one thing we did downtown, which was interesting, Chip and I put together a grid uh-huh. of every piece of property and yep. every owner mm-hmm. east of 15th Street. East of 15th East of it, which was way ahead of the oh, game. Oh, yeah. You know? So we got it all together. We had Penn Mutual Life Insurance Yeah, that was his partner. Yeah. As a partner. Yeah, I remember. And it got up to the investment committee, and the investment committee approved $50 million, which was a lot of money that day, to go out and buy the properties. And, and then the chairman of the board killed it. Big mistake. Oh, yeah. Big mistake. Because we were competing for where the Mar- Mar- um, Marriott Marquis is. Not Marquis. The Marriott on 14th and, and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that whole square. We had the money lined up. Bob Gladstone ended up getting it. Yeah, he ca- well, there's, there are two reasons that he got it. Because we had the whole thing assembled. And we had the theater agreeing. We were going to put... National Theater, yeah. We were going to put the National Theater inside the project uh-huh. with balconies on each level over a big atrium. Yep. We got approval from them. But Ackridge wanted to put the office building on Pennsylvania Avenue. Interesting. And the hotel on F... F G Street and the Pennsylvania Avenue Development Authority wanted the hotel on Pennsylvania PADC. And so they brought they brought in the Rouse Company. Ah, okay. And that thing, the Rouse real estate retail turned out to be a mess. The office building so so and the hotel worked out well. So they they were right with a lot of it. But that was a big disappointment because my, so, I could have retired back then. We financed it. The Saul Company financed that project. Did they? Yeah. We, for Aetna, Aetna was the lead lender in it. So we yeah. brought Aetna to the table on that. That was the most construct, most complicated real estate deal as far as ownership I saw in all my years working yeah. in multi There were There was a ground lease financing. There was, there was a ground lease and then the fee leasehold. Yeah. And both of them had three layers of financing. So you had six layers of financing on that project because interest rates at the time that project was delivered, the first mortgage interest rate was 13.5%. The second was 15 or 16% that the, this, the, they had a second loan on it to finance it. That was a takeout at the time. No wonder it didn't work. <laughs> Say this today. What's going yeah. on today? I'll tell you a funny story about that one. The, co- the 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 corner of Thirteenth and Penn Penn right was it used to be a theater there mm-hmm. owned by the Lowe's Corporation. Was across from the Willard then? No, the next block down. The next block, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which was part of the big block, right? So it was owned by the Lowe's Corporation, and I think of the guy's name, Jim Crozier, represented Quadrangle, worked oh, sure. for Quadrangle, okay. Huh? And he and I went up to New York. We negotiated verbally a, a deal. Mm-hmm. 
and it like eight dollars an FAR foot for the land. Those joke. were the days. It was a right? joke, right? <laughs> but it, you, yeah, those deals worked too. So then we get up there, and this guy named Arthur Report says to Jim offered a deposit of twenty five thousand dollars, and Arthur, this is so funny, I never forgot it, takes his tie and throws it over his shoulder, and says, "Jim, you see this button on my shirt? If I flick it like that." That's how much $25,000 means at the Lowe's Corporation. It needs to be 50. <laughs> Did you ever use that tactic in negotiation before? <laughs> Again? No, because now they want a million dollars. So anyway, we got the deal done and yeah. they, built, they built an office building there. That's cool. So let's see. You rose to become president in 1982 and subsequently merged in the early 1990s with Long & Foster Commercial. Well, we, we from 82 to nine, the next recession was the early 90s. Right. Oh, that was the big one. Yeah. And we were having a lot. We, you know, we were doing okay, but I didn't have any partners. And I had to be funding any losses or anything else. Or it was did stressful. you have any other income other than just brokerage or did you have a property management no. division? Anything that was no, uh, no, we bought a property management company. So I, I, um, I got in touch with Wes Foster. He had a commercial real estate brokerage mm -hmm. that yep. really was floundering around. Right. But he had some good people there, mm -hmm. but they still weren't doing much. So he liked the idea and he invested, a, I think, a couple million dollars at the time which got us through the, and we became partners. And and one of the first things we did after that, I wanted to get into the property management business. And so we bought Joey Kempfer's property management oh, company. Okay. In and, what, 92 or so? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, so I interviewed Bern Murphy recently. Yeah. And uh, Did he mention that? Well, he didn't talk about well, that. Well, actually, Mitchell Shear was more involved with that than Byrne. Right. Byrne left and went yeah. to Europe with Joey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joey didn't go right away to Europe, but he went the two soon of them, thereafter. The yeah. two, well, Byrne first, but then yeah. can't follow uh, right. Joey. And they've done very well over well, there. Well, they did. And, and apparently Joey's still doing well over there with yeah. it. Yeah. So. I mean, I haven't seen him in a long time. I interviewed Byrne recently. so it's, it's, He's an interesting guy. Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of... A lot of different backgrounds. Uh, yeah. Built two companies, basically. Yeah. So, and so, you know. Um, so anyway, Wes uh, invested some money with us. We became partners. And I would say Wes was the best partner I ever had. Because, well, for a number of reasons, but because whenever we made had a decision to make, it never took longer than 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that included buying companies or selling companies, and do you know, hiring people, not you know, making reorganizational changes, whatever it was. He just listened, commented, "Yes, I think you should do that," or "Why don't you think about this?" And at the end of fifteen minutes, we we move forward. That's it pretty incredible. It was great. It was great. That's great. So he was in essence your partner for a while. Then he was my partner. Never really active in the in the commercial brokerage business. Right, right. And then, but we merged their two offices together, and 
our office is theirs and got rid of a bunch of people. Is that around 1990 or so, 91? Probably a little bit later. 92? Yeah, whenever, yeah, when we merged the two together, we kept the good people and we let some of the non-performers. It's a tough, tough time. On. Yeah, it was a really tough time. And then, then 97 along came Insignia. So talk about that evolution. Well, actually 98 was when I made that deal, yeah. So what happened was, you know, with the advent of CBRE and JLL and the Nationals. Grubbinellis. Grubbinellis. Sure. A lot of the guys were saying, you know, and by the way, we were, we were, our revenue was double what any of those other companies were at the time. But they they kept saying that we're losing business to the nationals, which I don't think was actually true. Maybe you lost some, but you got other business. So it, it wasn't, anyway, they felt like it was, so I brought in a consulting firm and we, we had several sessions with our leading producers and we came to a group decision that, yeah, we should explore selling to somebody or merging with somebody. And And do you know why? I mean, what were the main reasons at the time? More resources. I mean, we were the first ones to start a research department and a marketing department. Mm -hmm. But when you call, when you go back and I go back and look at it, those, those, those are tiny little things that were helping to us to compete but we didn't have the resources to start putting out reports, you know, report, big reports and all right. that market studies and so forth. So we felt like that was an advantage. And, and so, but I, I was contacted once the word got out that we were considering it by a company on the West Coast called Cole. And K-O-L-L. K-O-L-L. They were yes. from Newport, California. Right. Exactly. And they weren't big in the brokerage business. They were more in acquisitions development. Developers. And and so they made me a, a proposal that I really liked. And we were we were moving down the road to make a deal. <laughs> and I was in my office one night around six o'clock, and over the wire, the newswire, CBRE buys coal. There, <laughs> there it is. There goes my deal yeah. the window. Right. Unless you wanted to join CBRE. Yeah. Which... Well, I didn't at the time because I didn't I didn't understand it at the time as, as much. It was more of a competitor than it was a, I understand. a partner. So then Jim Didion invites me out to San Francisco well, the, to sit down and talk man. about it. Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, and they had another, I forget the guy's name who ran the region here, Chris something or other, but I should remember that. And he said, well, you know, Chris is a, is a golden boy within CBRE, and uh, you'll wind up running the, <clears throat> the region. And he took us to this, you know, fancy San Francisco club in the middle of mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, he was holding court while I'm talking to him. It, it just didn't resonate well with me. And I'm a CB alum. As well, I yeah. worked them in. Well, early I worked 80s. for them a couple of years oh, after Insignia. Oh, so, okay. anyway, Insignia comes along, right? And I really I knew I, Edward S. Gordon. That was their, oh, yeah. that was their main state. New York, New York, of course. And they came down, and they and we talked a lot, and they convinced me that that was a good a good alternative. 
So we, we ultimately did a deal with them in 1998. Did you talk to Cushman and other other firms? No, that's GLL? just no, 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 none of the none of the big ones that I I thought in I I wanted to go to some place that needed us. Got it. I you got know, it. It was more of a need than a a want. I understand. And they and so they needed us, and so and they had bought Edward S. Gordon. They bought Jackson Cross in Philadelphia another company in Chicago and us. So it really felt good. Who is, the, who is the leader of Insignia, the fellow from South Carolina? That, Andrew uh, Farkas. Farkas, that's right. Yeah, but Steve Siegel was the guiding He was at ESG. Leader. Yeah, well, yeah. after Eddie Gordon was, but right. Eddie passed away. Right. And then and then Steve Siegel was the, the head guy. Mm-hmm. And another guy named Mitch Rudin. Oh, sure. Mitch yeah. is a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Staying, we've stayed close. Mm-hmm. And so we did that, and I signed a three-year contract to run it. We did fine. We did well. And then I decided, you know, that I didn't... How was the transition and the trans- branding and all that kind of thing? Did that Was that an issue? Yeah, that, that, was, that was not an issue because we didn't lose anybody, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I gave them a piece of the profit that we, we got from... Mm-hmm. It wasn't huge amounts of money, but it was... We love you, you know, stay. Mm-hmm. And they and almost everybody stayed. So we, we, we didn't lose a lot by doing it. And and we gained a lot by doing it, you know, with expertise and so forth. And but it got a little bit bureaucratic because Farkas was trying to either sell or buy other companies and he was trying to cut back on expenses and you know, I couldn't even hire a secretary without getting approval. And it got to be a little more than I wanted to deal mm-hmm. with. So I decided that since I'd been investing, you know, for many years in real estate, I said, I'll stay. I'll, and then they said, well, will you stay another few months until you can help us find your replacement? So I said, okay, under three conditions. <laughs> you pay me, I can start buying real estate. And I can use the resources of the company to w- work the real estate. And they said, okay. So I think it was four or five months or something, I found a replacement. And then I left and reformed Perseus Realty. And we, we started off by acquiring existing office buildings for rehab. So stop just a second. Why shift into the, into the principal side? I mean, what, what was your motivation there? Why, why did you decide after all those years brokering, some 30 years at the time, at least. Uh, you know, we'd been through t- two or three recessions. Yep. I didn't want to do brokerage anymore. Yep. And I was out of it quite a bit by managing, running a comp- different company. Yeah, you were more of a manager than I, you were I a broker. Turned, yeah, I w- but I was actually a, a different type of manager. I said, I didn't know anything about running a company at the time. Mm-hmm. So I said, how am I going to get respect from these people? I said, at least for the first two years, I have to still be the top producer. Make deals. Yeah. And what I did was, even though I made deals, I brought people in to work on them. And so they made money. And so they say, oh, this guy can add value. He's not just a pencil pusher. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's how I... So that was your management style. That was my management style. But then at some point, you couldn't do that. No, I didn't have enough time to do that. No. And so... And then I, I realized that if I wanted to go back into brokerage, it was going to be starting over again. And everybody else was established at that time. Right. right. So I just, you know, I liked investing. I liked real estate. I like all, that time I liked office buildings. 
Yeah. Had you, I'm curious, because a lot of brokers did this. They would take some of their commission and put it in deals with their, with their, with their developer clients. Did, did you do that? Yeah, I did that with mostly with Ackridge deals. Okay. All right. So you understood. You were already an NLP on deals. Yeah, yeah. I you understood, you know, what the owning a real estate project is like. Yeah, so the first building we bought was 4733 Bethesda Avenue. Oh, sure. You know, that was the, the tail end of the Artery Plaza. Junkie building. Oh, I know the building. But I liked it, and I loved the location. So we bought that building, financed it with friends and family. Wes Foster took a full floor. or long Did you Foster. buy it from Artery? No, I bought it from McFarland, or from JBG. And JBG has sold to McFarland. I, sold, I bought it from McFarland. Okay. It, that old building didn't fit with their game plan. John Green and, and uh, Brad Doxer. I know Brad. Brad, Brad that, that Brad's father was my next. Was our next. Oh, he was. Okay. Well, the, Brad so, was running the office at that time. I think. So. No, it was another guy. Um, anyway, so I got it financed. I raised some money with friends and family, and Wes. And Wes. Okay. And um, GE Capital financed it. So this is my first deal. Okay. I'm in I'm in Cotswolds, and I get a call from them, and the phone doesn't work well, so I had to go outside. I went outside. It was rain, raining lightly and cold, and they said to me, "We we want you to master lease the top floor or top two floors." And I said, "Great." The letter doesn't. Our agreement doesn't say that. I have five hundred thousand of my own money in deposit. It's probably CMBS. No, it wasn't a CMBS. It wasn't CMBS. No, it was on book, but it was GE. And okay. the GE had a reputation at that time for yeah. renegotiating. Yes, they did. And, and I, I was talking to these two guys, and I said, "Well, I'm not willing to do that." First, I said, "Fuck it, just blow the deal." Sorry, just okay. I'll blow the deal. And they said, "We'll get back to you." And they, they said, okay, we don't have, you don't have to master these the floor. Because I had a case against them on that. Not that I wanted to get involved with a case. So you're but I'm sitting there saying, yeah. this vacation is going to be very expensive <laughs> if I lose that $500,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we did it. And we pulled it off. We rented up the whole building and, and owned it for a number of years. And wound up selling it to JBG. Yeah, they wanted to assemble that whole They wanted to assemble that whole thing. Yeah. And then the next one was I bought a building at 1577. Oh, no, that wasn't the second. We bought 2440 M Street, which was a medical office building. And then we bought 1110 Vermont, which was a 300,000 square foot office building on Vermont Avenue. Was that an Ackridge deal originally? No, it was a guy named Abby Stillman from New York. Okay. And Ackridge wanted it because he built 1090. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, but I want to wait until we finish leasing up 1090. And then we knew the market was good. And mm-hmm. we said, no, we're going to take this other deal. And we got $6 a foot more rent than he got. And, and the building was twice as big. And so, and, and I don't hold it against him by any means. He just, he was, a, he was a one building at a time guy at that time. And so we did that deal. And then we bought this building out in Tyson's. 
because I, Dennis Ratner used to own the hair cuttery. Oh, sure. And yeah. we were bought, we bought this building from TA Associates, and they, I, I said, well, I want to buy this building from you. And they said, well, why should... And they were troubled. They, were, they had the government had gone, gone out of the building. I said, for two reasons. One, you're trying to sell it. And secondly, I have a tenant. So if you don't... I'm a 40,000-foot tenant. So if you don't sell it to me, guess what? I'm going next door and talk to the next guy who's got vacant space and buy their building. There you go. And so he said, okay, we'll sell it to you. Mm-hmm. And we and we did. We bought it and we leased it all up. And so, um, uh, you probably said, bought it at a pretty good deal if that, oh, yeah. that much vacancy. Yeah, yeah. yeah we bought it like it was a 120,000-foot building. I think we bought it for $15 million. What year was that? Just out of curiosity, do you remember? No, I don't remember exactly. But we've owned it now for about 12 years. Okay. Anyway, so those that was the way I got started. And then all of a sudden, these prices on, on buildings started getting out of control. And so we decided that I had a guy that knew, knew development. And so we decided to get into development. And our first project was a 350,000 square foot office building. That's quite a start. <laughs> office park in, in Montgomery County and Rockville. Oh, okay. Redland Corporate Center. Oh, Redland, sure. Uh-huh. Yep. And we were partner. We partnered with Prudential on that deal, and that worked out. That worked out well. And it was interesting because you know I feel like sometimes institutions make weird decisions at the wrong time, the right time. I started my career at Prudential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know I like those guys. They were great, and so we leased up the first building to. BAE systems. Yep. In the second building, we they had to fund another twelve million dollars for TIs and leasing commissions, and they said we don't want to fund it because we're at the end of our fund. We've done very well with that fund. We don't want to do that. Bring somebody else in. So I brought first Potomac in. Oh. Well, they were fine at the time, and uh, yeah. In fact, I'm going to visit Don Philly this weekend. We remain close friends. Mm-hmm. And they came in and and funded the TIs. We leased it up within a year. I mean, it was a, it turned out to be a great deal. So, you know, people make decisions for various reasons. Yeah, it's quirky. You know? And so that's how I started in the development business. The second building was 14th and W, which was a three 235-unit apartment building where it was very interesting. There was... The, uh, Anthony Bowen, YMCA, owned the land. Mm-hmm. It was the first African-American YMCA in the country. And we made a deal with them that we bought, their, we contracted for their land for $15 million. And we said, we'll build you a 40,000-square-foot YMCA in the building. And so we, we did that. And if, if, there were, if there's any savings, we'll write you a check. And if there's any overruns that you cause, that we cause, we pay for. You cause, you pay for. Anyway, the thing turned out to be a home run. And it's the most successful YMCA in the country. Really? Yeah. They have over 4,000, around 4,000 members. That's great. Yeah. It's a great, it's a really a fun project. So you just kind of, the company, Perseus just kind of grew evolutionarily. You started buying property and then... You realize that the markets are such that you had to develop. 
Yeah, at that point, yeah. Interesting. Okay. How has owning and developing property been more rewarding than perhaps closing a big deal as a broker? In knowing successful developers and brokers, I sense that developers have more patience and fortitude than brokers, whereas brokers tend to be deal junkies, as you mentioned, and need constant stimulation. What's your opinion around these distinctions, and where are you on that spectrum? I think that close, you know, doing a good real estate deal as a broker is rewarding. Of course. I, obviously, I enjoyed doing that for a long time. Right. When I decided to transition, mm-hmm. again, you know, as I said, lear- learning by by exposure or by gunfire, <laughs> what I didn't realize was how how capital intensive it was was going to be, and how much risk there was. Right. And so I try. I had to figure out a way to limit the risk, and that's that. That was the big difference. Because it wasn't that hard to raise money for a deal, but it was hard to, or debt or equity. But it was, but it, but it's hard when things don't go right. Well, and a lot of it you can't control. That's true. You can't. Well, right now you can't control anything. No. You know we have we have a building that's it's an office building actually in Boston is ninety four percent leased, and every week the value is going down. I can't control that, you know? No. You know, one of the Noma Center apartment projects, 500 units, we're now 83.5% leased, and the value is all tied up in the mezzanine debt. I mean, I don't control I The mez debt was much lower when we did, when we financed it than where it is right now. Well, it was a floating rate. Yeah. That's a problem. That's a problem <laughs> that, you know, you don't control. I'm not even sure how much... You know, it feels like the Mez guys are making all the money because you're paying them, but their cost of money keeps on going up too. So I don't know who's making the money in these in these deals. But there are those difficulties. And then we're doing one on 15th and S, only a smaller smaller job, for 158 units, and we partnered with a, a insurance company. And that's a lot more comforting. They pay their share of overruns. They pay their share of. They take their share of the risk, and so forth. And that's the way I was originally planning to do all the deals. But as they got bigger, we needed different types of partners. And and then of course the banks who used to lend you seventy five percent or so started leasing seventy, seventy, and sixty five and sixty. So where do you get? Where do you build the capital stack? Yep. You raise more equity or you find support yeah, financing. But the more equity you raise, the less return you get. Of course. And then, of course, as you, but you don't realize that the mez is eating you up. Of course. <laughs> well, the other thing is just not to just finance long and just, you know, use the leverage and get fine partners who are willing to stay in for a long period of time. Yeah, but yes, you're 100% right. And that's my mentality. But... All of the partners' mentality is they want to be merchant builders. A lot of them do. Not all of them. Not all of them. A lot of them do. You find family offices today. Yeah, some of them will stay. Yeah, that's right. But even insurance companies have they want to they want they want to churn it. Of course, someone owned for a long like like Northwestern Mutual. Northwestern Mutual is a long owner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's for sure. 
So how big is your company and how was it? I mean, how did you grow it? And, you know, as far as Perseus did. And, and then, of course, you recently in the last, I don't know, what was it, five years ago, you merged with Transwestern, something like Transwestern that? Development Corporation. Right. Which is one of the arms of the overall. Right. Um, well, I think you'll be surprised at this. We didn't grow the company very big. Mm -hmm. I had 350 employees at Barnes Morris. Yep. And I didn't want to get back into the management business. Right. People management business. Got it. And so we did all of these projects with 10 or fewer people. I wanted to keep the overhead down mm -hmm. and I wanted the third party, the majority of the effort, including the property management because property management is where all the, the overhead, the people come from. Of course. So we built, you know, we built about 3.7, 3.8 million square feet altogether with less than 10 people. How many projects? Oh, I don't, I, I, I'm, I didn't count, but probably 20 or something like that. Okay. And all office or <coughs> No, no, no. Most of what we're doing the last five years is all in. Well, we've done, we've done a little bit of everything. Okay. We we did office, we did residential, we've done three hotels, one industrial building, mm -hmm. built a suit for a client, and you know so and, and so it was a mix, a no mix, and just Except retail and just ground floor retail. Mm -hmm. and now I understand why that's difficult. <laughs> it takes forever to negotiate a lease, and then it's complicated by the city taking six months to give them their. Uh, you know, their permits. permits. And so before you know it, it's a year and a half. Especially a restaurant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Then you got the... So, um, no, we we of the food groups, we never really did any, like, shopping centers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, let's see here. Uh, so, elaborate a little further on what you're doing now, if you would. Well, I'm... To be candid with you, for the summer, mm -hmm. I'm chilling. Are you? Okay. I mean, I'm, we're taking some vacations, family vacations, going to our home in South Carolina, Kew Island. And, but I'm, I'm, I remain involved with the projects that are ongoing that I have financial responsibility. And mostly multifamily, it looks like. Yeah, right and we bought, yeah, we bought a site in Bethesda recently, and I brought in one of the equity partners. And so... They wanted me to be the managing member, so I I, I have things that are ongoing, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna I'm gonna stay there. People, some people are calling me and saying, "Are you gonna do? You want to do another deal and so forth outside of the company?" And um, I'm looking at one, but that's not my game plan. I I've decided that in this in in the fall after you know in September, I'm gonna decide how I want to spend my time. I'm working on the. I'm on the Federal City Council, the Economic Club of Washington. I'm on the board of the Alzheimer's Association. Mm -hmm. And I am very interested in rejuvenating the downtown area. Good. So I'm going to spend some time through probably either directly with the Federal City Council and indirectly with some ideas I have um, about how to create some incentives for rejuvenation. And I, you know... The city has a lot of ideas, but they're not, they're not taking. They're not. They're not good at implementing. They're good at creating ideas. They need. They need to be more aggressive. Mm -hmm. 
Well, they also need help from the private sector. Yeah. To get it done. And the question is, are really are they really willing willing to do it that way? Well, I mean, why should it take a restaurant? Who they want retail in this? Why should it take six months to get them a permit? And fighting them all the way. So I think of three initiatives the city's done over the years. That you mentioned one of them, PADC. So that was an interesting initiative. Now it took about want, forty years to do. It but, did, but it worked. Yes, it, it did. did. So that, well, I'm talking except about, for except for the FBI building. Yeah, well, that that's one. The other one is what Tony Williams did on the East End around Verizon Center and the whole. Yeah. You know, with Doug Jamal and all the effort that was done there. So that's the other big public-private initiative with Verizon. And then the third is the Anacostria Waterfront, what they've done there, that whole process. You mean the ballpark area, the Navy Yard? The Navy Yard, the well, wharf, on the wharf. All yeah. that. All, all that, that along the wharf. That whole Anacostria River. And they overlook downtown. Exactly. So those are the three huge that I can remember in the time I've been here. Well, now over at St. Elizabeth's. Yeah, well, that's another one. But I'm not positive. I'm not sure how that's going to work. We'll moment. see. We'll see. I know some people who work are working on some deals over there, and they say it's like it's like pulling teeth. And then, and when I interviewed Bernard Nair, he told me that he was one of the first people to unleash activity in Noma, with you know the NPR deal that, that Ray Ritchie did with them over there was one, and then of course the first you know the. ATF deal probably was the first major office building construction in that. Well, it's interestingly to note that it was a company called the Stephen A. Goldberg Company. Oh, sure. You remember Steve and yeah. Terry Pay? Mm-hmm. They were very instrumental, and I was a bigger, a big investor in those. Oh, really? Okay. We, we bought two city blocks, 100,000 square feet each, where you we owned them. the land for a long time, and we built 1,200 First Street. Oh, sure. The off, first office, real spec office building there. And then we wound up selling a lot of the, of the other land. But we were very active down there when it was all environmental headaches and warehouses and, and stuff. So I, I've been involved on in NOMA for a long time. Yeah, it's an interesting. But the, and, and, you know, NOMA and the, and, and, and the ballpark, I was skeptical of the ballpark because... I felt like the ballpark is no man's land in a way. Are people are women going to want to walk around there in the winter time when there's nothing going on and it's dark and cold and and where are they going to shop and where you know? But you know what? I was I was wrong with that. It just turned amazing. It turned out to be great. Yeah. But we did a deal as a brokerage way back when. We did three hundred M Street, where's a bunch of generals got together and put an office building together that was leased to the Navy. <laughs> so, okay. All right. <laughs> but we did that as a broker. So Gewer's family did that. Oh, sure. This was when uh, the Navy Yard was still Yeah, be, there was nothing there. Okay. That was the first office building uh, along M Street. Sure. So, I mean, I have various points of interest <laughs> in, those, in those places. Yeah. So turning to the real estate markets, what do you think the long-term impact of COVID COVID crisis will be. Will the overall office demand reduce long-term? How will space use be affected? Will there be some unique innovations ahead for unused property? What are you seeing? I think the first part of your question is the most critical. Of course. And COVID changed the culture 
of a lot of things, but it changed the culture and the, the work from home is now sort of a stable. And if you ask me why I think that that's going to last for a long time, one of, at least from a Washington standpoint, I'm not talking about the rest of the country. Sure. The rest of the country is still suffering from not going back to the office as well. But what, one of the things that I'm, I'm irritated about is that the federal government makes us pay taxes. They make us get driver's licenses. They make us register to vote. They make it. They can't force their own workers to go back to work that we pay the workers' salaries. Yeah. That irritates me. And I think unless the federal government, and, and, and they lease a lot of space all over the country, of so course. it's not just here. If they, don't, if they don't put their foot down, it's going to be a long time before the downtown rejuvenates. Because the back, going back, back and forth to work three days a week, the retailers, they can't afford, the workers can't afford to work in a retail store three days a week. They're not making enough money. The retailers aren't making enough money to hire them and pay them. A, and they raise the salary and they raise the taxes and all this other stuff. And, you know, it's a real problem. That The cultural change is a real problem. You know, I think there's going to have to be some very creative stuff. One of the things that seems to be a little thing that's happening, I think the, the transition from office to residential, I've done the biggest one that's ever been done in this region. We did one at called the Foundry out in Eisenhower in Alexandria. Sure. We bought a 600,000-square-foot empty office building, converted it to 520 units. We learned lots of lessons. How'd that go? It went okay. It went well. I mean, it went well. How um, was the window line situation there? No, we got we took it all down to, oh, the, to the shell. Okay. And we it, it's a great building now. It, mm-hmm. it leased up and, and, you know, fully. But my <clears throat> my point is, I would say not more than 10% of the office buildings actually are convertible. So, you know, if we don't get some serious redevelopment downtown, and I don't mean conversion, I mean tear these buildings down and start over with residential and mixed use. Right. The downtown's... A wharf-type environment. Yeah. The the downtown's going to suffer. And the interesting part of it well, I think it's possible is that all these apartment buildings that have been built all over the place are full because the young people want to live downtown. Yeah. They want to go to the bars. They want to go to the entertainment. They want to be able to Uber. They don't need a car. All these things. But there's nothing in the central business district. And that's that's the only thing I think that's going to bring back. I mean, sure. You know, they put this big food call it a food court in International Square. Mm-hmm. They should tear International Square down and build four apartment buildings there with retail mm-hmm. and food. Sure. And, and make, you know, I call it, K Street should be the Champs-Élysées of Washington, or of our country. Well, I look at the time now, similar to 1990, 91, where values dropped probably 75% in downtown Washington at one point. And until that happens again, yeah. You're not going to see redevelopment because the numbers just, people are just going to wait until they have to do something. So. Well, I don't know what happened. Maybe you do what happened to the old Williams and Conley building in Metro Center. They, they wanted like $300 a foot for it. I don't know if it's sold or not. 
I don't think it did, but it might have. I, I'm not, just not up on top of it. That building is convertible, mm -hmm. the way it lays out and everything. Sure. But at 300 bucks a foot and rehabbing it and redoing it, you can't, you can't rent it residentially. Nobody could, you have to get $6 a foot in rent. There's only a couple buildings in the city that get that. Yeah. Honestly. So, yeah, so that's I mean, a, that's a tremendous I mean, Richie problem. Cohen is doing a building right down the street. Yeah, here. at 20th, 20th and L. Right. I'm interested. I, you know, I called him and I, I waited too long. I used to drive by it every day. I called him and I said, Richie, would you want a partner on this thing? And he said, well, you know, we're already down the road, but, uh, you know, I'm glad you were interested in it. I still look at that as it's, that's, a, that's an in-between location. You think that building is convertible? I mean, looking yeah, at I it, think, obviously I think doing it, it, but, Yeah, know. I think that, well, they're doing it in a, a different way. They could have added three, three stories to it. They didn't. They're, they're building it in a modest, the cost is, I don't want to be critical of them because I'm not. I think they're doing it right, but they're doing it in the least possible expensive cost. And I think that, you know, I think they will lease it because, you know, they could claim that it's part of DuPont Circle. You could walk there in five minutes. It's close enough to the West End. It's close enough to the West End. Yep. It's you know there's a couple of apartment buildings two or three blocks to the to the west, so I I have hopes for that, but people who want to go east, they they're just gonna go to work, and if they're not going to work, it's gonna, like if you look at some a lot of the buildings like uh, uh, Learner's Building at at uh, ten fifty Connecticut ten fifty Connecticut you know Washington Square yeah I mean the retail is not great and the office is. Not great. And right on top of the metro station. Right. Right there. I know. I know. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's possible, but I do think it's going to take a lot more goodwill. The values are going to have to drop, like you said, from em for empty office buildings. And they're going to have to buy for land value. And the highest land value that you can pay, essentially, you know, for for a uh, residential piece, maybe 180 bucks a foot, you know. Well, you know, I interviewed Toby Bazzuto recently. Oh, yeah? I said, Toby, so how, if you were to buy a, a site today for a new development. With Residential development. Yeah, yeah, today's capital markets. And they build only Class A, really top top floor stone. He said, John, the land has to be negative value for me to make the numbers work today. Negative value, not zero, below zero. See, I don't agree with that. And the reason I don't agree with that, there's three ingredients. Okay. There's land, yeah. there's construction costs, and there's money costs. That's right. And you can't blame it all on the land. Because they don't make any more land. They make much more concrete, and they make a hell of a lot more money. So I would say that it's a combination of the three that don't, the numbers don't work. It is. It's not just land. But he said today, with where interest rates are yeah. and where costs of construction are for what yeah. they want to build, Yeah. They can't make the numbers sense. No, I agree. Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, we, we have that theory going on up in Bethesda in the site we bought. Right. We're going to get it entitled and do all this stuff. Who knows if we'll build it or sell it? They may have to while. sit with it or sell it. Yeah. So I asked him, yeah, we'll land bank in the right location. Yeah. So I said at another site that I brought him over 10 years ago. And it was longer than that. And a fellow named Marvin Jower. Oh, I know, Marvin, yeah. As a site in Bethesda. That's very interesting. 
<laughs> and he wanted to do a long-term ground lease on it, which is what he did That's what he three does. or four times now, mostly with JBG. Right. Yeah. But anyway, it was an interesting. And he said, now, today, I might still, I might land bank something like that. Yeah, I'm, we might too. Yeah. It's but, an interesting site anyway. You know, I, I, Bethesda has evolved and it's, it's, not, it's very nice. And I think it's a good market. But the building that just sold, the Elm, sold at a 5.1 cap. And you need uh, like four and a half in order to make these numbers work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I look at what Doug Furstenberg is sitting on in downtown Bethesda right now, and he's struggling. With the office building. Yeah. Yeah. Delivery was just well. Even if you, you know, not I don't. I don't want to. I love Doug, so I don't want to single him out. But no matter what, look at it. Look, Lincoln sold that building at L and and Seventeenth. He lost a fortune on that building. You know, somebody comes along. There was a lease that was done, and Heinz picked it up at a huge discount. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going to happen downtown. Yeah, and and Furstenberg just signed a lease with the, the I know a big Wal yeah. uh, the Wamata headquarters. Building. Yeah, yeah, that just blows Law my firm. mind. Why would anybody want to go to Fifth Street? There's Law nothing. Or, there's well, it's alternatives. What alternatives do they have right now? And they're doing a Class A structure with. Oh Rockefeller. no, it's going to be a nice, a great building. But but the point is, it's it's sort of transitional again. It is. I like I like transition if more than one building is going up at a time. <laughs> Really, because people want to be with people. Sure. You know, and, and walking around that area is, it's okay, but it's not, I mean, 7th Street is much better than that. Yeah, but I think the whole landscape of downtown Washington has changed it so has. dramatically that you really, there is nothing to really fall, you put your hat on right now. That, that, <laughs> no. It's, it's, I mean, Connecticut Avenue is just quiet walking up here, you know, it's just, there's nothing going on. Uh, you don't know street. what, yeah. We got all these buildings <coughs> along Connecticut that are There's owned nothing. by Blake. I don't know what they're doing, but somebody's going to have to tear one of these buildings down and build an apartment building or a couple of them. And, and once that happens, that's going to be a whole. Well, so I have another. I have a, 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 a psychological okay good ch change. All right. So the district has a nineteen point seven billion dollar budget this year. Okay. Close to twenty billion. Okay. They collect, on average, $40 million a year in estate taxes. That's nothing. That's a drop. That's less than 1%. Get rid of the estate tax. So people feel psychologically it's like moving to Florida. Or it's moving to Texas. It's moving to Tennessee. It's moving to Colorado. Yep. Why are we sending all these people away when you're only losing raised? Raise that something a, a dollar to get to, to make up for it, mm -hmm. but make it psychological that there people want to live downtown. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's I mean, no well, one, no, you know, they'll never do it because then they, we're just kowtowing to the wealthy. But you do need attractive places to be. You do, but if be. people want to be here and developers know they want to be here, yes. then they could build something. Right. Well, there's a. Definitely a lot of people leaving to go to Florida, that's for sure. Totally. And a lot of it is because of a tax tax reasons. Of course. Delaware, Not 100%, yeah. you know, but, but yeah. So why wouldn't you, if you're, 
No, if they were collecting, you know, 20, 20 million, I mean, 50, 75, 100 million dollars a year, okay. But if they're only collecting 40 on average, what are you giving up? The, the, the constituents in this city would go nuts, I think. Well, you just have to do, you have to think about creatively incentivizing it. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to see social problems get worse and worse. So Agreed. yesterday I communicated with Chris Smith, who, you know, WC Smith. He was at a, a function over at Southeastern about gun violence in the city. It's gotten pretty bad. Oh, it's terrible. This so fall, holiday weekend, the front page of the paper, yeah. p- 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 paper today is all about gun violence and killings. And there's 126 killings already in this in this city this year. That doesn't count the injured. Yeah. So when I think that's an, there's two there's there's three problems down t- for for urban urban areas. Sure. One is commute time. Yep. I came from I live up near AU. I came in today. I normally come down and go across L, L Street. Twenty third Street is being repaved. During the day. What, from Watson Circle South? or No, from Washington Circle North. North, okay. That's That was my street. I turned down and I turned left on that. Got it. I had to go around three blocks, so this way and that way, and down up Pennsylvania Avenue and up 18th Street. Do it at night. Mm-hmm. I mean, spend a little bit more money. Do it at night. Mm-hmm. Don't congest the city. Yep. Okay, so commute is a, is a big deal. Taxes, taxes are a big deal. Yep. Crime is a big deal. And and uh, inefficiency in terms of getting permits. Yeah. Those three or four things need to be dealt with, and it, it would turn the city around. But right now, crime is, forget the commute, because people don't, don't want to commute. But they would come into town if the, if the crime situation was a little bit more under control. And the council wants to, you know, take away these, these legislation to keep people out of prison, less sentences for people with guns. I mean, it, it just makes no sense. There should be more, more sentences for people with guns that commit a crime with a gun. I mean, that, that's, that's really the urban... Look at Chicago. Chicago is... New York? New York's getting a little better again. San Francisco? San Francisco's a disaster. Yeah. But, you know, I don't want to be negative because I, I think there are plenty of... Po- yeah. But there are things that can be done if government had the will to do it. Well, look at Northern Virginia. I mean, they seem to be growing and yeah. bustling. Yeah. They they do because they have, they have less crime, for one thing. Yeah. But they also have economic development too. Yeah, one thing. One thing that confuses me a little bit about this whole thing: when people want to, they don't want the commute time. That's one of their arguments. Mm-hmm. Why aren't suburban office buildings doing better? Well, that was one of my next. You, you just jumped ahead to one of my future questions here. So, will office users can pay up for premier locations and space as technology may have overcome a location? as a primary function for interaction, or will we return to our old ways of doing business? How do you see tenants manage the hybrid environment? And then beyond that, suburban offices struggled since the early 90s. Will it become more attractive due to costs and perhaps proximity to housing as it leaves the urban core? Will millennials leave the urban living trend behind and spread out more and consequently want to be office closer to home? 
That's a lot of questions. I know. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Well, most people, most tenants or individuals want to be in areas that there's some walkability. And I want to be near a shopping where I can buy my food. I want to be close to, I can walk to a metro. I want to be close to, you know, parks where I can take my kids. Sure. All these kinds of things. But if you pick certain environments in the suburbs, like you go to Reston Town Center, that's taken 40 years or whatever to develop. Look at National Landing. It's great. National Landing is getting there. Mm -hmm. But if you go to Tyson's, I have a second coming right on the metro on the Spring Hill metros. Okay, I mean within fifty yards of the metro. Okay, and but there's it's not walkable. The borough is now. the borough is getting that way. Mm-hmm. Is getting better. Yeah, yeah. And then what Donna Schaefer is doing where she is the city uh, center there city, city line. line. Yeah, and then of course what you know right next to Capital One, what they've done. It's all good, but if you live there. And you want to go, you can't, you got to drive to someplace well, you else. you got a Wegmans right there. You've got theater. Yeah, no, you've it's got, getting better. It's How, really, they have a hotel. They have a putting, they have a yeah, they, know, no. golf thing. And yeah, we're, it's cool. we're, so interestingly, we're all over amenitizing our, our yeah, assets. There's a lot of amenities, yeah. A ton of amenities. And a lot of them don't even get used. But you have to have them. But I think the walkability is a, is a huge deal. Again, there's not as it seems as if the crime is lower in a lot of the suburban areas. And so do I think that a lot of the suburban office buildings are completely antiquated? A lot of them are, yes. Yeah. I mean our building is antiquated, 1577 Spring Hill Road. Mm-hmm. We're trying to I fortunately I brought in a partner that doesn't care about cash flow. They only want to hold them. They'll hold the land for 10 years. Mm-hmm. There's some income coming in, but enough to cover the debt. Sure. And they don't care about it. They, they know that. It's a nice partner to have. That, yeah. And then, but there's another building called right next door on Spring Hill Road, two office buildings. They put them on the market. They're owned, they were owned by Angelo Gordon. They got no offers. They're now trying to sell the two buildings for land value. And what the hell is the land value out there now? You know? Ask David Cheek. He yeah. probably knows. <laughs> well, well, no, David Cheek would say it's worth a lot <laughs> because course. he's created an environment. Right. You know? Exactly. But these others, they're, they're, not, they're not environments yet. So you go up and down Old Georgetown Road, what's the value of land there? You know, it's an interesting question, right? You mean Old Those Georgetown? Old Courthouse Road is what I meant. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, those those older buildings have got a lot of, not only a, a lot of problems, a lot of them are built with with low ceilings. They're in, not, they're C buildings. Yeah, they are. They're C buildings at best. Ours is too. But we've, oh, we always bought it with the intention sure. of holding it, whether it was 5 or 10 or 15 years. It didn't matter. Although 15 years now, to be honest. It's with, probably a redevelopment. Now that I retire. It's a redevelopment play. Yeah. Oh, we got approval for a million square feet on the site. Sure. But you can't afford to do it right now. And the guy across the street, the Churner site, mm-hmm. the guy bought it for $120 million and there's nothing going on. He, I mean, there's things going on in terms of planning and so forth. But he wanted to build a 600 square, 600 foot tall office building. Oh. You know, it's insane. Yeah. 
So, but the, but it will happen. It will happen. But the na- they they have to they have to be little neighborhoods. I mean, if you live in Reston, you can almost walk everywhere. Of course, you know, or you can ride your bike, or the little metro that goes around. Yeah, Ray Ritchie did, did a walking tour with us. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he did. Even at his age, he yeah. walked around with. He took us all around all the rest of town center with my group. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, they did a wonderful. And then job. I just interviewed uh, Chris Clementi of yeah. uh, Comstock, and what they're doing at Reston Station is amazing. It is. It's an incredible project. Yeah. They've assembled a lot of land there. They assembled a ton of land. I tried to buy a couple of those buildings mm-hmm. on Wheelie. Yeah. And at the time, they, people weren't willing to sell, but then they came to they came to their senses. Well, he's emulating Reston there, town yeah. center. And I think no, he's building a ton of stuff there. Oh, there's four cranes right now on the site. I know. I go by. I went by <laughs> there on the way to the airport. But yeah, and he's done a great job. And, you know, and he got Google to come in there and. You know, I don't know how the apartments are doing, but I would think they're doing okay. They're, they're leased. He's, yeah. He's 95% leased on the office. He's got more office demand. It's still over from Reston Town Center. Well, that corridor is all high technology and yeah. cybersecurity exactly. and things like that. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a different story than, like, take, take Montgomery County at 270. Yeah. In the middle of nowhere, right? It's Six or seven office buildings. But life sciences doesn't drive enough. No, you know. life sciences is actually further out, too. Well, that's and true. You, you would think that democracy would be a great location, but there's nothing, no walkability, no support system, no metro, no nothing. So they're, they've, they're all medical office buildings now. I know. I was there this morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I had my knee replaced recently, and my doctor's up there. Yes. But again... I, Years ago, people thought democracy was like the cat's meow. Oh, yeah. Well, when the Camelier family unleashed that with the IBM and everybody yeah. else back in the 1970s, that was the park. And Boston yeah. Properties made their big investment there. And Ray will say that's the worst deal he ever did in Washington was that project. So well, it turned out that lifestyles have changed. Of course. Yeah. Look at no, People didn't mind going to... Well, Marriott was there for 10 or 20 years or something. More than 20, 30. Yeah. Nobody no, nobody minded getting in their car going to the office. Right. Yeah. Now they... Now, totally now, different mindset now. Yeah. If they go to the office now, they want a tro- the good ones that are leasing, they want trophy buildings with amenities around it. Not just amenities in the building. Of course. Yeah, it's a place. No, and the guys you've been talking to are, are terrific. They've done... They, They've done great jobs, you know, and a lot of these guys that are doing data centers have made a ton. And, you know, they picked the right locations because of fiber and other reasons. And Well, what's interesting is I asked Art Fusillo about, you know, here they are. They torn down White Flint Mall. They tore down Landover Mall. They didn't build a project out in Gainesville that they had 100 acres for. Mm-hmm. And Art said, we just sold last year that hundred that parcel to a data center operators, the largest land sale in the history of Northern Virginia. I said, really? Said, they made a lot more money than they could make by building. By building a regional mall, which they were originally planning to do. Exactly. He said, one word, John, patience. If well, you, staying, I said, you staying can, power. You can afford to do that, right, Art? He said, yeah. That's I mean, advantage. it's hard to believe that with all the problems they have with their offices and their their malls and everything that they 
They must have put away an awful well, How many people can tear down two regional malls and leave the land fallow for 10, 15, 20 years? I yeah, mean, and, and Wakefield's in a great location. Of course. You know, but the families are older. You know, they don't want to take the risk anymore. They want to wind up selling it, I guess. Well, as Art said, they have $3 billion of pipeline. Yeah. In their project, in their company. But they're not building, well, they're probably building some apartments and things like oh, that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they just sold an office building in Tyson's Corner for probably 50% of, you know, of cost. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that deal. No, I, mean, I didn't see that one. I mean, it was 100 and... A lease building? 50% leased. Yeah. One of the new ones over... No, this was not. Uh, it's this an older home, building that they yeah. owned. Uh, I think it was on... I can't remember. You know, when I started in the business downtown, and I would find some land that was zoned residential, mm-hmm. you wouldn't believe what people told me about They, they said, the land is, has no value. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And, and then it took... A huge turn and was worth up to two hundred dollars a foot or something. And now, now it's it's still worth one hundred and fifty bucks or something for a week. For but you can't build it today, okay? So is it really worth it or isn't it worth it? But most people in the land or that own land don't sell land; they sit on it if they've owned it for a long time. Like Steve Goldberg would say, call me all the time and say, "Should we sell our land in Noma?" And I'd say, no. I said, Steve, land goes like this. It doesn't go up 3% a year. It doesn't, you know, it goes like this, then it, it goes like this, and then it goes like this, and then it goes like that. So, and, goes and like we're that. in at a low, or vice versa. <laughs> and we're in at such a low number, there's no urgency to, to do anything. And then it turned out it was a great, a great transaction. Well, I have a theory, and I'm, after talking to so many people now, that the demand side of the equation now is much more important than the supply side. And that's pretty important. Yeah. And I think that their value of real estate has changed to the demand quotient as opposed to the supply quotient. So now you, I think you look at real estate differently than you used to in the old days. So I may be wrong, but how you calculate that is, is the hardest thing. To well, so out. now, yeah, how do you, how do you, how do you project the demand. It's hard. That's the so but you can't when you build an apartment house, you can't pre-lease it. Mm-hmm. You have to guess, project that in your location is going to be attractive enough for people want to rent there. So I interviewed a guy by the name Michael Broder, who has a company now called Rockerbox, which is a software as a service, and he's selling to developers for predictive analytics on what your tenant wants in your apartment building. So doing it from an amenity analysis, size of the unit, the specs of the space, um, all the ambiance, the whole, the place, everything measures that. And then you determine, and then you, you do your development based on what those demands are for the demographic and then a psychographic and demographic analysis for the tenant. So looking at completely at the demand side of the equation, which is interesting. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. And then five years later, it changes. So did you build the right thing or did you build adaptable. the wrong thing? It, it, yeah. The biggest part of that was with the parking requirements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, all these, like in, in the Northern Virginia, the parking was like one for one or one and a half for one. Mm-hmm. 
and now it's down to like 0.5. And, and they look at it like we don't want any more traffic. You know, developer looks at it, I got to have enough spaces that the tenants will need them. But if I build too many spaces, they're going to sit vacant. That's a challenge. Yeah, you can't figure the demand because in your the demographics of your building, if you're in an urban area, you can guess that most of them don't have cars. But if you're in the suburbs, they're going to still need cars. Well, if you're on top of a metro, that's one thing. But today, metro, I rode metro down here today. I mean, I was, <laughs> there were five people in the car riding down, you know, in, in my car going down. The metro stations are basically empty. I and think that's, just, that's episodic. I mean, this week is a slow week for everybody. But but what I'm hearing, a lot of people are saying that on rush hour, the metro's packed. So, I mean, I don't know where they're... Uh, that, that's another hard one. I mean, there's $750 million in the hole again this year. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strong... And they built, they built three 300,000 square foot office buildings. What is that all about? Well, and they're doing public-private partnerships still yeah. on sites. Yeah. I don't know if that adds value for them or not, but it's going to be interesting to see. So looking at Washington, D.C., both the CBD and other submarkets, how, how do you think it will recover? I mean, suburban Maryland, you, we talked a little bit about this. Suburban Maryland stagnated. Northern Virginia has recovered well. You think... This weight going west is going to continue in Washington, or do you think that D.C. and Maryland will be able to kind of recover itself over time? And what will it take to do that? Do, you, do I think that the, the suburbs will recover over Well, time? I think, you know, I'm looking at the three jurisdictions. I think, you know, Virginia, as we talked about, it just seems to be because of the tech growth and all that. Long I don't term. know. One thing I, I, I question about Roslyn, where Monday Properties is given back, well, I don't know if they're giving them back, but their they're, they're loans on seven buildings wow. are in default. Yeah. Now, that seems that they must have cross-collateralized them because how can you have seven buildings in default? But So that's not a great... Who was their tenants? Was it, was it federal office? But was it federal... Users? Oh, well, yeah, State was there, Nestle's moved in a few. I mean, so they had some big, big, you know, big name tenants. I don't know. I don't know why it's, I guess they must have had floating rate debt or something because without, there must have been something that caused Or it was over leveraged. Or it's over leveraged, right. So those, those kinds of things don't hurt. You know, Skyline Center was sold at a a song, but the guys had something, some good ideas about what to do with it. And, and I, I would say that Northern Virginia is the most likely to succeed. Mm-hmm. And for, for governmental reasons, it's easier to get permits over there. It's easier to get through the system. People want to be there. And the governor will go to fight for you for every single deal that might want to move into Virginia, whether it be Richmond, Southern Virginia, or Northern Virginia. They, they, they are really busy, proactive. Bu- proactive business generation. Maryland, I don't know. Maryland, most of what's going on there is 
is medically driven right. research and <clears throat> and those people are are different. The, the the people who work for those companies, you know, they don't live at the at those buildings because there's nothing around them. They go back to their homes and their communities. Mm-hmm. So that that I think but I do think that the upper up, upper 270 will continue because there's land available. There's a lot of land. Yeah. So there's land available. So so people with those specialized uses will continue. I don't think it's I don't think it's really over overgrown. Silver Spring is okay, but it's you know it's Prince George's County. I think Prince George's will do better than you think. Not that you think, but but that most people think. There's land out there. Plenty. And there are, you know, look, we've, a lot of the cities have pushed people out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, because are minorities and they live in, but they live there. And there are amenities in a lot of those places. Greenbelt has, you know, the metro stops that, you know, are, are developing slowly. You know, infrastructure there, Kaiser Permanente out there. And right. I do, and, and I think, well, I don't know if also Brooks is going to be the next senator or I think she should stay where she is because she's been a proactive mm-hmm. for, for development. But Do you have any projects out there? Yeah, we do. We have one in Hyattsville, mm-hmm. a 300-unit apartment building that's under construction. What do you think about that project? I think, it's going to, I think it's going to do fine. I think one of the things... So when we built our office building at, at Redland Corporate Center, what I suggested to our team was there's a lot of, of, of vanilla office buildings out there. Why don't let's upgrade it a little bit? Let's make it give it better bathrooms, give it better lobbies, give it better amenities. Mm-hmm. And it and it still comes in basically at the same price. It's not at those days the prices weren't increasing every day. And we leased up. And so we're doing the same thing at, at this project in uh, Prince George's. Better, better lobby, better amenity packages. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted this. Uh, our guys wanted to stick the pool on the roof of one of the wings of the building. It's a kind of U-shaped building. I said, do you think this guy's going to go all the way around here and go over here to go to the pool? And what are we doing back here? We built a a, a parking garage. Mm-hmm. So everybody who's looking out of their apartments are going to look at the ugly roof, and nobody parks on the top roof, top of the roof anyway. Let's landscape it and put our pool there. Makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. So then at least when you're looking out of your room, out of your apartment, you have something decent to look at. Oh, what a great idea. <laughs> you know, so yeah, we're upgrading it. You're right next to the mall there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right across On the street. East Highway. Yeah, right across the street. Okay. You know that dental office there's a yes. building on the corner and it's got a little but there's a Safeway right there, there's shopping right there. There's amenities around the area, and we'll have some amenities in the in the building. And I liked it because you can rent the building for two dollars and fifty cents a foot or two sixty. Mm-hmm. You know, every place else is three dollars and more. And it's, make the numbers pencil. Yeah, so I think I think mm-hmm. you know the bell shaped curve. There's more people that, that sure. in that population that I think we'll do okay. That's great. So you've worked with and managed a multitude of people and varied personality types over the years. How do you gauge whether a person will work out or not, both on the hiring process and over time? 
What characteristics do you look for in your employees? You're talking about in the brokerage side? Start with that and then, and then evolve to development. Well, I'll, I'll tell you two quick stories about the brokerage side. Okay, great. So a friend of mine, oh, Ben Jacobs is a good friend of mine. He's been, we've been buddies for years. You guys have known each other a long time. So sure. Ben called me one day and said, this is when I was at the brokerage company. Uh-huh. Bob, I think you should talk to a guy named Rob Factorow. I said, well, why do you why do you think that, Ben? You think he'd be he, he, why, he, would he, why would he be good? So what's he doing now? He said he installs high end stereo systems in cars. I thought about that for a little while, and I said, really? Well, that's not that's not an easy sale, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, yeah. ten thousand dollars to put a stereo system in your car. Right. How many people are going to buy that? Right. So I said, okay, I'll talk to him. And it turned out that I thought he was a good salesman. He was smart. He had a good education. He's turned out to be, most people don't know him, but he's been probably the most successful, one of the most successful brokers in the history of the area. I mean, really successful. And he's, he, he used, what he did is he, he, he knew every single thing there was to know about the Dulles Toll Road. Mm-hmm. And he made many, many deals there. And he's built a team up now with 20, 15 or 20 people, and they're doing data centers around the country, and they're doing this. But it turned out that I took a chance on a guy who was a stereo system salesman. Mm-hmm. And I've made some mistakes. What too. was your sense when you met him the first time? Um, I, he, was, he was young. Mm-hmm. He was... He was aggressive, he was polite, and, it, and you could tell he was smart and had a good education. Mm-hmm. And so I took a chance, I, I just took a chance with him and it turned out to be a good chance. Another guy I hired was to focus on retail, shopping, not not malls, but you know, re, uh, strip regional centers. strip centers. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately I put him, or he was teamed with a guy who wasn't very good and he was really struggling. And one day, but he was very detail oriented and he was very knowledgeable about his product line and Mm -hmm. so forth. His wife came to see me one day and she said, will you let him go and let him find a new job? We can't afford to live like this. And I said to her, Debbie, this kid, every every good broker sits on the fence. Either they fall this way or they fall that way. And he's going to fall that way, I can tell you. I, I knew it. I could see it. I could sense it. And he turned out to be a superstar. You know, you just, it, it's, it, it's instinct. Can you say who it was? A guy named Bill Kent. Oh, of course. Right. Leading sales, retail sales guy. I didn't know he worked for you. Oh, yeah, for years and years. Okay. And uh, but went to CV after that. Well, we all merged. I guess that was the CV That was all part of the merger. That's right, yeah. But it was like, I remember that like yesterday, that that she begged me to let him go. Isn't that something? And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll support him. I'll give him a bigger draw or I'll do something that uh, he's going to make it. And he sure did. And he sure did. And uh, there was one other guy. I can I can say this because it's posthumously now. 
Mike Curtis used to work for Ryan. Oh, really? Yeah. And he, he was a pretty tough guy. And, but his goal was to... Well, the reason Explain I, for the listeners who Mike Curtis was. Huh? Explain to the list for the listeners. Okay, the list, Mike, Mike Curtis. Curtis was a middle linebacker for the Baltimore, Baltimore Colts, right? And he Iron Mike, I think. Iron was. Mike. He was he was awesome. And he came to work and came in. And the reason I hired him was, I knew he could open doors. He didn't know that much about real estate or anything like that, but he could open doors. And so if we put him with the right group, then he would be. But his attitude was, no, I want everybody to know that I'm as good at real estate as I was football. As a linebacker. Yeah. So I took him to a meeting in Silver Spring. He took me to a meeting in Silver Spring one day, and he was talking to this guy about, I forget what piece of real estate it was. Anyway, we come back, and you know, I said, Mike, you're never going to make that deal. And he said, Why? Because the guy only wants to talk football. He don't give a shit about the real estate. <laughs> he wants to talk football. So next time you see him, go out there and talk football. And he'll make that deal. And he made it. Because the guy was a football nut. Of course. You know? And so there's all these little stories about people that are, are positive reasons, you know, to hire someone. Because you're not going to, a salesman, you're not going to find a Harvard graduate with three degrees. No. And, you know, I had one guy come in to see me one time. He had, he was from, I don't know which companies, but call it J.P. Morgan. And he was with a couple other investment bankers and had a big degree from good colleges. And he wanted to go into the brokerage business. I said, what the hell are you doing here? Why do you want to go in the brokerage business? Mm -hmm. He didn't tell me this because he probably got fired from all those other places. He just wasn't doing a good job. Well, it's so. funny you say that because I interviewed Tom Fulcher recently. Yeah. And Tom got his MBA at Darden, Darden, you know, and he comes and I said, Tom, you have an MBA from Darden and you want to be a broker at Studley? And he said, yeah. I mean, I just felt that that was the right setting for me. You know, with an MBA at a top business school, and I said, just seems unusual to me that you would want to do that because it's a straight commission. You're you're on the street, and that's what it is. So it's an interesting. But it's a whole different thing now. The good brokers are really smart. Yes, they are. They really know their territory. They really know their products. Yeah. Because they have to build. They have to it's build a business. A, in itself. a business. Yeah, right. It's a business. They have to build a business. Yeah. To be successful. Yeah. The old days, you know, like I'll I'll introduce you to John and you know, this and this guy, and I'll put you together, and you call me when when you never made a deal or something. You know, that was that's that's history. Mm -hmm. There's some pretty good guys out there, like ladies. I mean, some of the ladies in the business have done exceptionally well. Yeah, when I first moved here in Washington, there was a lady at Cushman Wakefield who, I mean, she was the grand dame. Yeah, you know and what I'm talking about, I think. Yeah, and Lois was was really good. Oh and, yeah. You know, there were a lot of them that are uh, really done well. And it was hard to break into the business for women in those in those days. Oh, yeah. It's a lot. So, you know, so a little bit of it's, it's gut feel, but you can tell if a guy or a woman is, says the right things, that they're willing to dig in, they're willing to work. So 
I'll tell you one more and that's it. So a, a cousin of my wife lived in New York and he wanted to get into the brokerage business. So I called, I called my friend Mitch mm-hmm. and I said, Mitch, would you interview um, this, this individual? And he said, yeah, I will. I said, but let me t- tell you, if you don't like them, don't feel any obligation. If you do like them and you decide to hire them, that's when I want to ask you a favor. And the favor is to team up with somebody that he can become successful. Mm-hmm. And he did. And the guy is the vice chairman of CB now. But, you know, those, those little things about mm-hmm. affecting their people's lives. Because if he threw a broker into the New York office at Edward S. Gordon and you're on your own, it's like you're not going to make it. You have to have a mentor. You have to have a good mentor. Oh, it's critical. Yeah. Yeah, I learned that early in my career, and that's one of the reasons I have my this group that I have, which uh, mentorship is crit- critical. So you mentioned a lot of names, but I'll just say who, if anybody, starting maybe in your brokerage career going into development, who really inspires you? Who, who in the market here has been your inspirations? Maybe more than one. Yeah. You mentioned Ben Jacobs, but, you know. Yeah, no, I, I used to do, I, I did most of my business. I mean, I, I did a diversity of things, but I sure. did most of my brokerage business with, besides institutions, you know, they didn't, institutions when I started didn't really own a lot of the real estate. Families did and individuals did. I used to go once a month to Oliver Carr's office. He wanted me to come in once a month. And we would share, Ollie, this is what I'm doing. This is what, and they would tell me, he would tell me what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And invariably, I would walk out of there with something to work on. That's great. Whether it was a buy or work on something or sell something or whatever, I always had something to work on. With Chip Ackridge, I, I met him first while he was at Gladstone. I don't know if you know, that's where he started. And I hooked up with him early on. And I just took a chance that he was going to be successful. And it turns out that, you know, the first deal we made was uh, 1627K Street. And it was a 60,000 square foot office building. And we got sued by, I won't mention who. You see, the guy claimed we interfered with a contract or something. And we won the case, and I learned a lot, but that's that was Chip's first deal, and then we did it on 1015 15th Street, and it just went on from there. So I admired him, I worked, you know, I, I enjoyed working with him. I mean, it got to the point, I did so many deals with him, I said, I'd call him up and I'd say, Chip, guess what you bought this afternoon? <laughs> you know? and, and invariably, you know, we didn't do everyone, but we, and Ben, Ben Jacobs was one of my, you know, early on. I did a couple of deals with Mel Lincoln. You know, those were the guys that were making making all the deals back in the day. What about the Bender family? Never did a deal with them. So the first deal I did in, in, the, in the district was Ben, the Benders owned, the Benders and three other families owned a piece of land in Connecticut and Ellicott. And we reached an agreement. Ben was going to buy it 
along, and he partnered with the Holiday Corporation. And they all, we got everything signed except Morty Bender. And of course, I was a young kid, and they, they send me, go see Morty, get to get his signature. So he makes me wait a half an hour, and I walk into his office, and he says, what the F are you doing here? And I said, I came here to get you to sign this effing contract, and then I'm leaving. And he signed it. But, I mean, he had to intimidate you. You know, that, that was his role in life, to intimidate people. So, but I never did a deal with the vendors. This was it. I interviewed Steve Lesgard. Huh? I interviewed did Steve Lesgard, yes. Yeah. Uh, he, he had a good career with them. Well, Steve changed the feeling there. Yeah. He took it from a, the hardline construction company it was, dealing with the federal government and building things and slamming subcontractors to the point where they, you know, had to fold under yeah. to terms that they had to, to do to becoming a real estate company and doing business what real estate company. So Steve had to, to change the culture there, and he did a lot to do that. Well, he did. They, they well, after Morty Bender got in trouble with the uh, hospital. Out on, yeah. Well, they tossed him out of the company. Yeah, that's when, but that's, he wouldn't have been able to make those changes if Morty had stayed. No, Morty was. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, there, then there were other companies and institutions that I did business with. And, sure. You know, lots of lots of different types of people. I even sold a psychiatric hospital one time to JBG, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, it was like a sale lease back then. So, did you ever deal with any of the residential developers around town at all? I mean, the Kepler's and the you know uh, people like that. A little, yeah, a little bit. The, the first deal that Bob Kettler did on his own from the Kettler company sure. was called Westover Place, mm-hmm. right across the street from American University. Right. You and, told me about that. And I, I sold that land to him. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was owned by the Methodist Church. I had to fly down to San Antonio, Texas to present to the, the, the church people down there. And I did a number of deals with uh, some of the other universities. I did a couple of deals with Catholic University. Mm-hmm. I did, did a couple of deals with Stanley Martin Communities. Oh, when, sure. When Martin at Marty Alloy, Marty Alloy was running yeah. the company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, so I, but the more more people that I knew at that, in the, when I was early in the brokerage, they all wanted office. Right. That was the, it cuts me out. But Washington was. Yeah. And that's why I, I, Washington really has to reinvent itself, almost. It does. It, 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 you know, it was a single product for a long time. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot to do. It's like having Walmart as your biggest client, you know? So what are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back, Bob? Well, I have I have two children and four grandchildren, mm-hmm. and they're all a high, all high priority. Of course. They're, they're nine and 12. They around your family? No, one's in Philadelphia and one's in Westport, Connecticut, mm-hmm. but close enough. Yeah. We're all going on a family trip to Italy this nice. in August. Nice. Uh, so family is is a high priority. Mm-hmm. I want to give back to the city in a way, in whatever way I can sort of uncover that I can be play a meaningful role. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to show up at meetings and 
nothing happens and things like that. Sure. The Alzheimer's Association is important to me because it's becoming a, a more and more prolific disease. And there's still some, there's some hope along the way. What inspired you there? Well, I lost my brother at an early age. and He was 63. Oh. Early onset Alzheimer's. And he was diagnosed when he was probably 57. He didn't know it for a couple of years. And, so you could uh, just see his life fall apart? Could, yeah. Yeah, I went to, and he lived in California, so we were flying back once a month, and, you know, they didn't have a lot of resources, so we were So you were close them. to your brother. Oh, yeah, very close, very close. So that, that inspires me. I do want to spend some time traveling. I'd like to, if, if I can find the right circumstance, I would like to maybe be on an advisory board or two. Uh, but I don't want to be too busy. I understand. I, I want to have time. Balance. And I'm also meeting with a couple. I've already started having a meeting with a couple of guys who want, have retired. And they want to. I'm, I'm a YPO, YPOer. Sure. So we're talking about forming a little a forum type group where we might meet once a month and share ideas and concepts and investments and so forth. Have you come across working with Bob Young and Todd through that at all? No, I know him pretty well. He's in YPO. Yeah, oh yeah. He's a great guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, I met his partner, Terry Aiken. Terry was part of the first deal with Ben Jenkins. Oh, the Ellicott House, because he worked on the holidays. JBG basically got them up and running. Well, yeah, how they they had, had Joey Kemper, it had Vern Murphy, it had, who else was there? Terry Aiken. I mean, they had some really talented people. So, so I, I mean, those ideas, I have enough. I'm not, I'm not planning on starting another business. I understand. I may, I started Barnes Moore. I mean, yeah, I'm not Barnes Moore. So I started Perseus in 58. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm not, I'm not anxious to do that. If some medium sized deal comes along, Mm-hmm. That I, you know, that that I could get involved with, I would do it, but not on the operational side. I'd have to partner with somebody who has it, infrastructure. So, what were your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career? Well, I've had a lot of wins. Sounds you know, like it. Yeah, I've had a lot of wins. So I don't want to. I'm not anxious to just. Right. So what losses? What, what, what the biggest losses? biggest loss? Well, I wasn't that big a loss. I did a build a suit warehouse for a cane company, moving cane sure. moving company. Yep. And uh, they were doing, you know, a large amount of business. They were the second largest in the city. And uh, John Kane really was not his father, so he didn't run it. He ran it into the ground. So, and I built this building for him. And two years later, he went bankrupt, Oof. out of business. And I had liability on the loan. Mm-hmm. That's the only loan I've ever had personal liability. So anyway, I f- we figured it out. A good friend, a guy through YPO, I call was Chuck Kuhn. And, you know, the JK movers. Oh, sure. And we've known each other through YPO. And I said, Chuck, I need some help. In this 38-foot warehouse that needed... It was stuffed with stuff. 
from the government and law firms. And I couldn't sell the building or I couldn't lease the building with it being full like that. I said, can you help me get it vacated? And he did. And, it, you know, he lost money on it, I think. But he, he helped and we got it. And, and we lost a little money on the deal, but not too bad. But my, I would say my biggest disappointment is some of these current current deals that the money partners, money, <laughs> I shouldn't call them partners, money people are really taking advantage of the situation and they're, they're taking good projects and making them not so good. That's my biggest disappointment. Remember, that project up, you know, Noma Center, I've been involved with for 10 years. I bought it when it was a Greyhound bus terminal. Right. And we were going to build an office building and an apartment house and retail. Then the office market went bad. So we, I couldn't. I didn't want to build 750 apartments. It was too much. It's a lot. So I went out and partnered with Dave Poland, who and we've done two, three hotels together. Oh, okay. So we partnered his and and we built the 235. But the point is, this the debt structure on both on the whole thing is is making it very stressful. That's too bad. And that's a that's that's my biggest disappointment, really. Interest rates aren't helping right now. No. Because construction costs were not a problem. We came in on time and actually a little bit under budget. Yeah. Because we had bid it right before COVID. Yeah. And so we were we were in good shape there. But you know that's that's the biggest disappointment, especially you know, you can't refinance, the banks are closed. You can't, you know, this, sort of the other recessions that I went through, they all had about an 18-month time frame, horizon. Mm -hmm. And you could tell when they were getting better. This one, you can't tell when it's going to get better. It's hard. Yeah. I think patience is going to No, and I'm, I'm at the point of stepping aside. Yeah. And I hate, I hate the idea of having trouble I understand. at this point. And I wasn't saying I needed to make another $20 million or something, but but I, I like the idea of, I don't like the idea of having trouble. And not, not only for me, but all the people who worked on these projects, they just, they put their heart and soul into it. Sure. And they're not going to get out of it what they put into it. You know, when you start a real estate project, you just never know what's going to happen, right? No, you don't. Well, when you start technology companies, you know, one in 10 make it or something, yeah. you know, so. I no. think the odds are even are better in real estate if you've got a good location yeah. over the long term. So well, like I said, they're not making any, they're not making more real estate. And so if you get a good location, yeah. you know, you're going to, if you can hang on, you're going to be fine. So you've been through a lot of transition and change. What's the biggest surprise in your career? What, what kind of came out of left field? Wow, this really hit me. The biggest surprise. That could be people, that could be a situation. That could I be actually thought that when I sold to Insignia, mm -hmm. that the, the agreement included me becoming a significant part of the executive team. And had I done that, which didn't, didn't materialize because... It was New York centric. <laughs> they don't like outsiders. They like us, but they don't like us in their business. So that didn't materialize. 
And that's what sort of drove me to think about doing another business. Understood. Interesting. That was somewhat of a disappointment. That's interesting. So, so what, the other thing, when I told you ahead. about the IBM thing, mm-hmm. where I got fired, yeah. yeah, that was the best, in a way, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, you know, at the time, it wasn't. Of course. So one of the crazy things I did is after we sold that first apartment project, mm-hmm. I think I got a check for $50,000 or something. I made a copy of it. And I sent it to the president of, of the division of IBM. Oh, there you and go. I said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Do you still have a copy of that letter? <laughs> no, I don't. You could have framed that. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. I, I mean, it wasn't fun at the time. Although I will, I, I, will, I don't know if I should tell you this on, on the live, but I went to see him well, when, after they fired me. Yeah. His name was Bart Stevens. Okay. I had to go up to New Jersey. I drove up to New Jersey, Franklin Lakes. I went to see him. And it wound up spending a half a day with him. Really? I mean, he enjoyed the conversation that much. And he, the one thing he said to me, I never forgot. He said, Bob, if I ever told my wife or my son what I'm doing to you, they would never speak to me again. Wow. Because it was such a stupid thing. Yeah. And just as I was getting ready to leave, I said, you know, I was one of the leading the leading salesmen in the copier area. They kept giving me new products. And I was promised a, a bonus. Mm-hmm. I never got it. And he says, well, how much was it? It was $20,000 or something. Mm-hmm. But $20,000 under those yeah. conditions was important. Yeah. And he says, hold on a minute. He picks up the phone. He calls controller's office or somebody. He says, write a check to this guy for $20,000. See, that was worth going up there, wasn't it? Oh, it's definitely worth it. And, you know, <laughs> oh, but, but by the way, they didn't just fire me. They fired my manager and his manager above him oh my God. for giving me approval to do it. It was ridiculous. Corporate bureaucracy. Yeah, corporate bureaucracy. But again, when I sent that copy of that check up there, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? Myself, yeah. my twenty-five. If you were twenty-five self, today, what, what advice would you tell yourself, twenty-five, your twenty-five-year-old self? I would say that I should have done more in the education world, improved, spent more time mm-hmm. learning, not necessarily to do something different, but to do what I do better, what, what I could have done better. So you didn't think street smarts. I mean, you, street no, smarts. No, street smarts are you critical. Were you were good at it. Yeah. But that's the way I came up, those street smarts. And there's still a lot of things that I would, you know, fortunately I had people that I could rely on that would be able to help me with those kinds of things that I didn't necessarily capable of doing. But, yeah, I think that I would have spent more time developing myself in the education. Is that something that as you get older that you want to do more of, like learning, doing yeah, things that you hadn't, hadn't? Just before you got here, yeah. my, my assistant gave me a book that is Computer Learning for Dummies. Oh, really? There you go. And I'm going to read it, and I'm going to spend more time to try and be more efficient on the computer. Good. Yeah. That's great. So that that's, falls into the same category. 
Understood. And I know some people will say, well, Bobby, it's such a good career. And I, I don't disagree. But it would I think it would have been more satisfying had I been a little bit more in educated on, on certain things. That's great. So if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway okay. for millions to see, what would it say, Bob? I thought about this a little bit. Go back to work. It's good for the soul. That's great. Bob, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. That's great. I, mean, I really appreciate it. Can you turn that off for a minute? Yep. We're all done. So we just listened to Bob Cohen, who just recently retired from Perseus TDC, as it was called, and now it's Transwestern Development Corporation. They changed the name when he left, basically take the Perseus name with him. So I did ask him whether he's retiring or or not, and he said retiring is a is a funny is a funny word, <laughs> but he said yeah. it was good. So as I usually do, I have a Postscript guest, uh, Ramiz Munoir. Ramiz, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Ramiz, uh, what did you think of the conversation with Bob, and what takeaways did you have from it? Yeah, I thought it was a really insightful conversation with a lot of valuable nuggets, um, especially for for someone in my peer group. Uh, I have two main takeaways from this conversation. <laughs> the first one is, is sort of a common thread among a lot of the, the conversations you've had which is to believe in yourself and to have conviction about your skill set. And then you also have conviction about your ability to execute and to, to have the confidence to be willing to bet on yourself. So that, so that was my first takeaway. My second takeaway is it's important to surround yourself with the right people and the right mentors. These people in your career will be a conduit to a lot of things, including relationships, investment opportunities, and so many other things. And so I think, you know, a, a lot of projects will sort of succeed based on who you get paired with and who you surround yourself by. And as I learned, as I've learned over the course of my career, your partnerships will impact, you know, how much headache you have to deal with as well. So I think it's really important to establish, you know, the right relationships and the right sort of dinner table, if you will. What were uh, some of your key takeaways from that? Well, thinking back about both points you made, I would say that you know, his confidence was built, I think, primarily before he even got into real estate. And he became, you know, he joined IBM right out of school and went into their training program. And when I started my career in the late 70s, people that came out of those training programs, those sales trainings, Xerox and IBM and other office equipment at that time, that those were the most skillful sales programs of teaching ball because you're selling very large ticket products to business people. So it's the B2B sales. They were really the cutting edge sales people. And so they learned how to be out of, I mean, he said he even uses some of those tactics today in what he, in, in approaching people to sell or to build relationships, mm-hmm. what he learned in that, in those sales training programs. So I thought that that really gave him the backbone to do the sales business. What he didn't say, which was interesting, he got in, he just looked around and I guess said, commercial real estate looks intri- appealing to me after he unfortunately got let go by IBM on a very strange 
circumstances. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting story. Going to a you know an award store, he was in the top five percent. They let him go just because he took a fiance instead of his a wife. To it anyway. So he goes um, into into brokerage and wasn't sure which one and talked to two or three and then decides to go with Barnes Morris Bardot and built it to be you know one of the two or three biggest firms in the in the town. And he said he was he said he was the top broker in town for ten years when he first started. You know that that could be true. And he had Chip Ackridge as one of his early clients. So he said he did 10, 10 sites with Chip. And then he had relationships with Oliver Carr. He said he'd meet monthly with Oliver Carr Jr., which is Oliver Carr the third's father, who Oliver Carr Jr., I think, is close to 100 years old now. He's in his late 90s and still comes into the office, I believe, from what I've heard. Ben Jacobs, the founder of JBG. Mel Lincoln, who had been around. So these are all very active developers in the 1970s. And so he got into the land business that way. We did, I did bring up Vernon Narr, who was also a guest. And Vernon competed with Bob, obviously, on a lot of deals. And so he said that when he went into management in 1982, he said John and Vernon actually took advantage of that because he didn't have to compete with them anymore, which I thought was an interesting comment. But uh, so Bob in 82 transferred from being a broker full-time to running the office, still doing brokerage, but doing that. And then for 20 plus years, stayed in that role through the sale to Insignia and then subsequent to CBRE. So he saw lots of corporate change and he partnered up with Wes Foster and also, Long Foster, he said that was the best partner he ever had, which I thought was an interesting comment. And Wes Foster, of course, Long and Foster was the number one residential real estate firm in the nation for many years when he was alive. And I don't think they are anymore. I mean, he just had an amazing way of managing real estate brokers in the residential side. So I think Bob learned from Wes. How to, how to run meetings and do things. So Bob's career is an interesting one. He's been in the business for since 1971. So what is that, 60 years almost? And 50, no, 50, oh, 55, yeah. 55 years in the business, 54 years. It's a long time. And still one is it being approached for new, new transactions. Um, interestingly, for a future interview with Dave Poland, who I'll be interviewing soon. He and Dave did a project in Capitol Hill. It is, but it's actually near Noma on a Marriott Hotel mixed-use project on an an apartment building that they developed together. I'll dig into that a little further with Dave when I get into it, but he was good at bringing people together and getting deals done. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, he, he had mentioned all the different crises he's been through. And we had talked about it before the conversation today about the sort of cyclical nature of the industry. And you learn how to survive over time. And, you know, I thought he had mentioned an interesting point about how the, the current sort of economic climate we're in is just very different from all of the all of the ones we've had, including the great financial crisis of 2008. And I think the one the, the sort of obvious uh, component to this one that underpins the problem is just the work from home 
where that's been over the last couple of years. And it, it feels like, you know, we, we've sort of stalled with the federal government returning back to office. But even if they do, you know, how much different is the office market actually going to be from an investment sales or leasing perspective? And then once you factor in where we are with interest rates and inflation, I think it's a very interesting time to be studying economics and trying to figure out, you know, sort of the crystal ball of what's going to happen. We've heard in other conversations and other episodes about, you know, how we might just be in sort of the second inning or third inning of, of sort of the office repositioning wave. But there's a lot more to come. And I, I, I kind of agree with him that we don't really see the light at the end of the tunnel on this one and how it's just so very different from issues in the past. Yeah, we talked about demand being the, the issue. This is the theme that I've seen, you know, throughout the thread. That's the main thread I, I'm seeing right now in market analysis and real estate is demand is the key now. Supply is secondary. And people look at supply and say, if it's if it's not space that I it's adaptable that I can use, it's worthless to me. So to me, if you own space that's tired doesn't have any appeal you may as well write it off it, it has it's it's actually negative because you have to tear it down and replace it so there's going to be a major reshift of value for a lot of property not just in downtown washington but around the region of class b minus and c properties that need to be uh, rejiggered basically and re- re- redeveloped if you're yeah. really honest with yourself, capital markets are going to force the issue as, as loans come due. And so, as I suggested to, to him, and he didn't argue with me, is that we might be similar to where we were in the early 1990s when land, land value dropped 75% in downtown Washington for office buildings. Mm-hmm. And wow. values dropped that almost that much. Mm-hmm. It could happen again. And that'll have impact across the city. And one of the impacts we also talked about is crime. And mm-hmm. some of the things that are going on now, not so great. And the city's got to fund, you know, security services. And if you're not comfortable being in downtown Washington, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. I talked about that with Toby Bazuto in my last episode as well. It's it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the interesting related points that you guys had also talked about was, you know, you would think that the suburban office markets would be doing better, but they're not necessarily, it's not proportionate to what you would think it would be. And I think one of the reasons why is like, yeah, you can you can live out in the suburbs and commute to the suburbs, but there still is a time factor involved. And I think one of the other reasons why that market hasn't been as strong as we had thought it would be is because some of the some of the resistance to commuting downtown still exists if you're commuting to the suburbs. And so, for example, you know, you're still having to, to take to have child care. For example, you still need child care regardless of where you're commuting to if there's no one at home. For example, you still have to pay for parking in most cases. You still have to pay for, you know, the cost of transportation, whether that's metro or gas or whatever it might be, right? It's, it's maybe less, but it's still there. So I think some of the cost components are still there. And even if you're cutting your commute down from an hour to half an hour each way, you know, that still is time that you could spending at home with your family or doing work or doing something else. So that that's why I kind of feel like there still is that resistance to going to the office. It, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, half an hour away or an hour and a half away. Well, if you've got a work-live environment, though, 
And it's interesting. You know, the last two episodes I had with Toby Bizzuto and with Chris Clemetti, we talked about that, that the ability to walk to work from your office, and that could be in the same building, literally. So, and I look at downtown Bethesda. I look at Reston Station where, where Chris is developing. I look at Reston Town Center. I look at National Landing. And I look at the wharf, let's say. And, you know, the wharf doesn't have much office space, but there is some office there. And then Noma. You can look at mm-hmm. Noma. There's office and residential within walking distance of each other. Mm-hmm. But you go to the CBD, and how far does it take to – I mean, you have to walk to Georgetown. Well, that's not mm-hmm. close. And Georgetown's very expensive real estate, mm-hmm. residential. Um, you know, you can walk from there over – maybe to Logan Circle, but it's a long walk from downtown Washington over there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what, until, as he said, as until you see more construction of, of apartments down in the CBD or nearby, I mean, the building sites, which is kind of an interesting one, 1050 Connecticut Avenue, he said, you know, the water, which is the huge footprint. Washington Square. Of the metro, Washington Square, right. I mean, that's a perfect opportunity. But to me, you have to divide the building into, you know, you'd have to build a, you know, more or less an atrium in the center of the building and then do something with an interior type of finish to be able to give, you know, on a window line for any residential development there. So, yeah. And there's a lot of buildings like that in the city, probably 10 to 15 that I can just right off the top of my head, I can think of that have. Huge footprints that you could, you need to reconfigure or demolish, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I, ironically, I think there's a lot of large floor plate buildings in the city, but if you actually go to Google Maps and just hover around, it's actually kind of surprising how many buildings in the city have atriums. I was a little bit surprised by it until I went through this exercise about a year ago. Um, but you, you can zoom into almost any block and find one or two buildings with an atrium. It's, it's kind of crazy, but well, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming a lot of that because these are interior spaces. If you were to open it up and create sort of outdoor courtyards, the atriums would need to be winterized. So then you get into right. the construction cost of piping and waterproofing and all that. But I think there's a lot of potential there. Well, with your background, Ramiz, you'd be ideal <laughs> to buy a really low and low priced office building that needs redevelopment and, and put your creative hat on. Figure out how to reconfigure the the property yeah. or conversion to residential use, or at least mixed use, some mixed use environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all about basis, as they say. That's the key. Yeah, it's the key. For that. Uh, any other thoughts? Take away. Uh, no, I thought it was a great conversation and a fun one to be a part of. Great. Well, thank you, Ramiz. I appreciate it and. Thank you, listeners, for listening to this. I am, you know, going to be sending out and we'll have available on on my, on my website opportunities for people to contribute to help fund this podcast a little bit. We are a nonprofit now called the Iconic Journey and CRE, and I would encourage you to consider donating you know, $10, $15, $20, $25, or maybe $5 a month, 
just to contribute a little bit to the coffers so that we can help finance this and also community activities for the Iconic Journey community, which we have uh, now a little over 60 members and growing. So, and also if you're interested, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com if you wanna learn more about uh, that community and about opportunities uh, for the nonprofit going forward. Thank you very much, appreciate your time.